Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're addressing the 1976 genre mashup film, Devil's Express, also known as Gang Wars. Did you know about this alternate title, Rob? Yeah, yeah. I'd run across some sort of alternate trailers for it. Uh, I guess you, you see this a lot with, uh, with with films that came came out, especially back in the you know, the nineteen seventies, where it comes out. Maybe it doesn't play as well, uh, or maybe something else happens in the zeitgeist, and you want to you want a second shot at it. So you just retitle mm-hmm. it and put it out there again, and see if you catch any uh, any viewers. So the claim that I came across, uh, we should uh, maybe it's best to start with the elevator pitch. The elevator pitch here is that when an ancient Chinese demon is released into the subway tunnels of New York, a saintly master of the martial arts named Luke Curtis must summon all his courage to defeat the underground evil. <laughs> so it is a martial arts demon horror movie. But it also has uh, elements of, like, gang fighting in the streets. And according to a write-up by Code Red, which I think did the Blu-ray re-release of this movie, they said that when The Warriors was released theatrically, which I think would have been in 1979, Mm -hmm. so three years after this movie came out, they say the distributor of Devil's Express retitled it Gang Wars, essentially to make it look like a a Warriors-type movie. Of course, if you haven't seen The Warriors, that's just a... It's a movie about uh, all these weird different little uh, gangs in New York that have their their own interesting costumes and quirks and they're uh, running around fighting each other and, and all that. And I think they wanted to cash in on that uh, that Warriors magic. Yeah, I mean, The Warriors is a, is a fabulously weird film in its own right. Uh, because when we say weird gangs, we mean, if you haven't seen it, it's like there's a baseball gang. You know? Yeah, there's a, the Baseball Furies, that's right. Yeah. I, the first time I saw it, that was the funniest thing about it to me. They were wearing baseball uniforms, mm-hmm. and they have bats, I think. Yeah, so it's like, it's it's as if it's set in, a, in an alternate reality where you just have a bunch of wacky wacky gangs with uh, with all these wacky themes. Uh, uh, so it's definitely worth, worth checking out. Uh, superior movie to what we're talking about here today, but the one we're talking about here today, Devil's Express, is oh, just a wonderful mashup of, uh, of different genres. Uh, they, they all kind of slam together awkwardly, uh, you know, uh, scraping up against each other, sometimes jackknifing around each other uh, in a way that, that is ultimately quite entertaining. Yeah, so they retitled it Gang Wars, and there are gangs in this movie, and the gangs do fight. But this movie really has more to do with its star, Warhawk Tanzania, hunting down a demon to fight in the subway tunnels. Yes. And, you know, I, we can we can introduce Warhawk Tanzania all day and uh, and we are going to get into Warhawk Tanzania in a minute. But why don't we go ahead and listen to the, the trailer, uh, the original TV trailer for the film, because you really need a narrator's voice to introduce Warhawk Tanzania to the world. To take a ride on the Devil's Express. What happens when 2,000 years of evil strike a city? See Warhawk Tanzania match blows with the devil and those the devil has possessed. Some deformed monster. Take a ride on the Devil's Express. It may be your last stop. Rated R. See, now aren't, aren't you completely on board with Warhawk Tanzania, the, either the next big thing or the current big thing uh, based on uh, the, the salesmanship in this, uh, in this particular trailer? One thing about the trailer is the trailer really plays it up as a horror movie, I think. Mm-hmm. What, what, what do you think about that? Would yeah, you agree? yeah, they definitely stress the monster movie aspects of this, which I think is, I mean, that's what brought me to it. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I realized, oh, this is not just a, a New York City martial arts gang war movie. No, there's also some sort of a subway monster in it. There's a demon. And, um, and I'm a sucker for any, any film that, that puts monsters in a subway, especially the New York subway system. Um, I, I'm, I'm just instantly enthralled. Oh, of course there. Uh, but stylistically, this film has a lot of things in common with a lot of these sort of crime exploitation movies of the 1970s. I've seen a lot of 
uh, people online uh, saying that it, it has elements similar to black exploitation films, which are a uh, a genre that uh, has has a very complicated legacy. Uh, of course, yeah. these were films that came out in the early seventies, especially. Uh, they're they're often said to have been inspired by. Uh, a couple of seminal works. One was Melvin Van Peebles' uh, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, which mm-hmm. I think came out in 1971. And another big one was uh, Gordon Park's movie Shaft. And it's debatable whether those are whether those should actually be thought of as black exploitation movies themselves, but they certainly are, are thought to have inspired this genre of films that had sort of larger than life black heroes, but that also tended to deal with themes of, uh, of crime and uh, were often set in New York City and have this complicated legacy because on one hand, the, they had these larger-than-life black heroes. I've read about some scholars talking about how, you know, finally you could have like a, a black hero on the level of James Bond, that kind of like superhumanness. Uh, in, in a movie starring in a movie of his own, but then also like the the term black exploitation actually was coined by a member of the NAACP who was very against the genre, who uh, because basically I, I think he thought that it perpetuated negative stereotypes about uh, the black communities in America. Yeah, because these were often movies about crime, so that you know you had you had gangs in them. They had they had would feature. Um, uh, prostitution or drugs and violence, um, and and if you just if you're just watching the, these films of this genre, it, you know it makes you think like this is all there is. This is all there mm-hmm. is to, um, uh, to, to to black culture and to black life in, in America at the time. And in a similar way, of course, you also have kung fu exploitation films, and this is also the, a kung fu exploitation film where if you watch uh, films of this caliber, uh, you see um, basically. Basically, um, Asian characters, Asian cultures, and certainly, uh, in this case, like Asian American life as being just martial arts. Uh, like this is a movie that features several different um, Asian actors, or at least Asian stuntmen and Asian uh, martial artists. But there's not a single Asian character of any depth. I like I I do not know any of the Asian characters' names in this film. I don't know that they're given names. Yeah, that's right. And of course, this movie would not be the only one that sort of mashed up the the 70s martial arts exploitation style movie with black exploitation aesthetics. Mm-hmm. These two things had collided in other films as well. Uh, but in this case, it also brings in horror, yes. which is a very interesting third element here. Would you so, say it's course, the third rail? It's the third rail that oh, drives the train? You could say that. So, of course, this is a this is a grimy 70s grindhouse film, but it also borders on one of our favorite genres that we've discussed before. Of course, this other genre we've talked about was the supernatural wrestling movie, such as the film starring El Santo, where the the noble luchador hero must confront a mummy or a Dracula. The one we talked about on the show was uh, Santo and the Treasure of Dracula, which was a really fun movie to talk about. Uh, Here, this is not exactly the same thing, but it's kind of close because this is essentially a supernatural martial arts movie. Like Warhawk Tanzania must confront not just corrupt cops and rival gangs on the gritty streets of 1970s New York, but the denizens of hell itself. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, and it's ultimately it's it's a Beowulf and Grindel story. You know, it's the story of the the hero who must travel down into the depths, into the dark realm where the monster lives in order to defeat it. Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, that's exactly what happens in this film. Speaking of which, is this our first martial arts film on Weird House Cinema? Have we done another pure martial oh. arts film? Uh, I, so many movies have elements of martial arts in them. I, I I would find it hard to believe we haven't touched on anything there, but this might be the closest thing to a pure martial arts movie, yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and talk about the people who made this possible. Uh, there's there's some, several fun connections in this film. Um, at first glance, it might look like a you know, one of these Z pictures from a casting standpoint where, where nobody goes on to, to, to do anything else or has any kind of interesting connections to the rest of the world. Uh, but that is not the case. Uh, let's start at the top with the director uh, and also one of the screenwriters, Barry Rosen, born 1946. He only directed a couple of pictures, but he was a producer on the 1975 film Black Force, 
where he apparently met some of the stars of the, uh, that, that he would uh, utilize in Devil's Express. And as a producer, he went on to work on some, uh, at least a couple of really fun projects, including Highway to Hell in 1991. He was a line producer on that. This is the, the wonderful Hell Cop movie starring Patrick Bergen and the entire Stiller family. Like Ben Stiller's in it. Ben Stiller's mom is in it. Ben Stiller's dad is in it. Oh, yeah. Oh, weird. Oh, it's, it's so weird. It is a weird film. Gilbert Godfrey shows up playing Hitler uh, because it's hell. Uh, there's all these bizarre elements in it. So uh, that's that's definitely, um, uh, I haven't seen it in a while, but that was one I, I, I fondly remember catching on like USA Network back in the day. Okay. And then Rosen also produced 22 episodes of Highlander, the series. So uh, kudos on that. I can just see him sending the dailies back, being like, no, no, got to have more juice in these quickening scenes. <laughs> now, I, I mentioned that Rosen was one of the, the writers on Devil's Express. There are four other screenwriters that are credited. So this is basically Rosen et al. Um, I, I'll list their names quickly here, uh, but I, but they didn't really, I don't think any of them really went on to do much else. But uh, still, the, the people that made this possible, Nikki Patton, uh, Pascal Vaquer, Ciotis Robinson, and Bobby Saperstein. These are the screenwriters. Okay. Uh, moving on, though, let's get to the main event here. Let's get to our, to our star, the man who, and this plays Luke, but it's hard to imagine anybody with a name like this just playing someone with a name like Luke. But we're talking about Warhawk Tanzania. You know, I read some reviews saying, like, uh, uh, sort of deriding the film for trying to rely on the what they claimed was non-existent star power of Warhawk Tanzania. But yeah. I, I kind of disagree. I mean, Warhawk Tanzania is clearly not a not a super experienced actor, but I do kind of think he has star power. Yeah, I think he absolutely has star power. I mean, he he has the looks. He has this 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 really righteous um, Afro hairstyle. Uh, this he's uh, he's got this cool mustache. He's uh, he's lean. He's mean. He can throw some kicks and punches. And yes, he only has I think two different delivery styles for his dialogue, but you feel it uh, when he delivers those those lines. Like he's still he's still connecting with you. Uh huh. Uh, but but yeah, the thing about the trailer, especially or a couple of the trailers that I, I watched for this, is that they really do sell Warhawk Tanzania as if he is either the, the, you know, the, the current big thing or the mm -hmm. next big thing in martial arts cinema. Like he is exploding. The Warhawk Tanzania train is about to leave the station. Are you going to get on board? Yes, I'm on board. <laughs> yes, I have my tickets right here. First class. Because, I mean, if nothing else, it's also just an amazing name, Warhawk Tanzania, just undeniably cool. And we see that in his character, too. Like, I feel uh, we call him Luke, but I feel like the character is Warhawk Tanzania as well. Uh, I should also stress Warhawk Tanzania had one, I think, one film credit prior to this and no film credits after this. Uh, he was uh, in that, that 1975 exploitation film, Black Force, that I mentioned earlier that came before this. And then he's, he just does not appear in anything else. Um, and I don't think anything is really publicly known about the man. Uh, I would say that it probably went one of two ways, though. Either after this film, he decided that he was just going to live a, a private life and be a private citizen. And if so, you know, more power to him. Or sure. great. Warhawk Tanzania has spent the decades since this movie battling actual demons and monsters around the world, taking the fight to the forces of evil as only Warhawk Tanzania can. He is a he is a martial arts exorcist of your mass transit systems. Yes, he's a fighter. He's a lover. Uh, he's a, a demon hunter. He's a peace broker. Uh, he he brings it all to the table. Totally agree. And believe it or not, there are other actors in this film. I mean, it seems like <laughs> like maybe they they at first they thought well we'll just cast Warhawk. We don't need mm -hmm. anybody else. Warhawk Tanzania is enough to fill up an entire film. But then they realize well we have to cast all these other roles too. Uh-huh. Well, I don't know if I know anybody's name except Rodan. <laughs> uh, well, first there's a, uh, we'll get to, well, let's go ahead and hit, hit Rodan because Rodan's his buddy. Okay. Rodan's his, his, uh, his companion. Uh, they're on the same course. They're on the, you know, they seem to have the same mission in life, but it becomes clear as we'll discuss that they do have different agendas going on. There, there's some conflict between them. Oh, yeah, yeah, there's totally conflict. I mean, so Rodan is Luke's student in the movie, his student of martial arts, because uh, Luke is a martial arts master. But whereas, 
Luke is, you could argue, pretty much lawful good. You know, he's in many ways sort of a paladin or presented as such, viewed as such by the creators of the film. Uh, Rodan, I would say, is more in the sort of chaotic neutral territory. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, you know he'll he'll be good, especially if he's there with Luke. If you know he has yeah. that uh, that Warhawk energy keeping him in line, but if he's off on his own, uh, you know he's he's running games all over town, as we find out. Right now, Rodan is played by the actor and martial artist Wilfredo Roldan, who lived uh, I think 1951 through 2020. So he he did pass away last last year. Um, Lower East Side resident and apparently like regional, at least regional martial arts legend. Uh, he was born in Puerto Rico and uh, he moved uh, to the continental United States at a young age. Uh, his acting career seems to have consisted of two different periods. He did some exploitation films when he was very young, including this one, and then some other film work later in his life after he retired from a career as a, as a PE teacher for the, for the New York City Board of Education. Hmm. He, uh, you can look him up. There, his there are websites about him and memorials to him. He apparently sang. He was a, a much beloved uh, uh, master, I think, a grandmaster of a particular system of martial arts uh, that he did not. I don't think he he did not found this this school of martial arts. It was uh, founded by a guy by the name of Frank uh, Ruiz. But uh, yeah, he was an accomplished uh, martial artist and uh, like sort of a regional celebrity. You know, you'd hear t- talk about like New York City people, you know, uh, the sort of characters that uh, that fill up the city that might not necessarily be known by people who are not themselves New Yorkers. What well, seems like Wilfredo was one of those individuals. Uh huh. And he's uh, he's he's pretty good in this movie. You see him throwing some amazing kicks, and uh, he's he's not bad as an actor. I feel like he's got a sort of a a natural charisma as well, but also a kind of uh, something you don't trust about him. He's got a meanness to him, uh, and of course that comes out in the character as well. Now there's another martial artist, or at least partial martial artist character that shows up early on, and that's a a cop character by the name of Chris. And Chris was played by Larry Fleischman. Uh, this is another, like Warhawk, age unknown. Don't know when this guy was born. Um, presumably still alive. British-born actor. He popped up in 1971's Johnny Got His Gun. Uh, he was on All My Children, Law and Order, a couple of video games. He's perfectly fine in this. Now, another, a really interesting and weird uh, actor that shows up in this film. Not very much. Like, he basically shows up for two scenes almost as if he wandered into the shot and they decided to pay him. Um, but uh, a wonderful, wonderful actor that many people uh, probably know by his, uh, his stage name, his performance name, talking about Brother Theodore. Oh, his scene in this movie was one of the best parts of the whole thing. Yeah. Um, I think, is it two scenes? Is he also, is there a scene where he's looking at a dead body in a subway with some police officers for oh, no real reason? Uh, if so, I missed it. I don't recall okay. that one. I remember the one where he's preaching to the, the crowd, and we'll get to that later. Yeah, he mainly just has a ranting scene. So, yeah, Brother Theodore, also known as Theodore Gottlieb. Uh, he was born in 1906, died in 2001. And I read, I've read that he improved all of his lines in this as well. Um, he was a, a German-American actor who performed a, a kind of stream-of-consciousness stand-up. And uh, he has a fascinating life. Uh, I, w- I was reading the New York Times obit for him by Douglas Martin. And uh, the whole thing's worth reading. Uh, a fascinating character. But I want to read just these, these, these two snippets from it. Quote, Born to great wealth in Germany, he ended up in Dachau, only to be released when he signed over the family's great fortune for a single mark. Einstein, said by some of Mr. Gottlieb's friends to have been his mother's lover, helped him get to the United States. And then we also uh, hear, always an aristocrat, he suddenly found himself working as a janitor at Stanford University, where he managed to defeat 30 professors at chess simultaneously. So uh, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I don't know anything about this guy. So I, I admit I'm coming from a place of ignorance, but I feel incredulous at reading these sentences. The, the 30, I mean, also knowing that he is very much a performer and, um, uh, and, and kind of a professional weirdo. Uh, I, I mean, I don't doubt him on the, on, on the core backstory here, but the chess mm. thing raises my suspicion. Maybe he really was a brilliant chess, uh, uh, player and and would just you know wiped up the mat with a bunch of uh, Stanford University professors, but 
I don't know. Uh, either way, I like the the myth building though, because he seems this is one of those weird uh, characters you see throw, show up in some stuff, and um, yeah, it, it it seems like it's hard to tell where the mythology ends and the real life begins with him. But uh, anyway, he, he he ended up in the United States. He eventually got into acting and comedy. He had a small part in Orson Welles' The Stranger in 1946, which was his first role. And uh, many of our listeners probably know him from his final picture. He shows up in 1989's The Burbs. Do you remember The Burbs, Joe? Um, is that the one with Tom Hanks? Yeah. I'm not sure that I've seen it. It's It's one I saw when I was a kid, so I haven't seen it as an adult, but you have a number of, of weird character actors playing weird neighbors in that. Uh, I think Bruce Dern is in it as well. Uh, a couple of other people that, you know, people would, uh, viewers would recognize, but yeah, but yeah, brother Theodore is in it playing one of the, the neighborhood weirdos and uh, it's pretty, pretty good. I'm sorry. Does it have vampires? I don't think it has vampires. I think it's just oh, okay. weirdos. I'm, it's okay. been a while since I've seen it. I don't okay. remember what the payoff was. But there was a lot of like creepy goings on in like suburban basements. I may be confusing the burbs with the money pit. Mm. Yeah, different movie, but sim- very similar era, I think. Now, Brother Theodore has two excellent voice actor performances uh, um, on his um, uh, filmography uh, from the animated films of Rankin and Bass. So he, uh, he played, have you ever seen 1982's The Last Unicorn, Joe? No, I haven't. Okay, fabulous film, score by America, uh, wonderful, wonderful vo- vocal uh, vo- voice acting performances throughout. But Brother Theodore plays his character Rook, uh, a hunchback who attends uh, the witch Mommy Fortuna, who runs this uh, this sideshow of of magical creatures and monsters. And so wow. he's this uh, he's this really fun character, and, uh, not a not a huge character in the film, but a memorable one. Okay. Another character he played in the Rankin and Bass animated films, he voiced Gollum in 1977's The Hobbit and in 1980's The Return of the King. Both great roles, both great performances. Um, I have to say, I've, I've, I've fallen back in love with the original animated Hobbit uh, in the last couple of years. And I, uh-huh. I think, I'm, I'm, I can, without a doubt, I can say Brother Theodore is my Gollum. Can you sing the songs? No, I can't sing the, sing the songs. But it, it has good songs in it, too. 1977's The Hobbit, also one movie. It's, it's, it's brilliant. They managed to fit that, that entire short book into one short film. I don't think you could do it in less than four, six-hour <laughs> movies. Yeah, somehow they did it. Rankin and Bass. Yeah. Okay, who else we got in this? All right, so we have some... The next one I want to mention, because it's, it's a weird uh, credit on, the, on the, uh, the cast for this, there's somebody that is referred to as um, uh, Sikagi Tanzania, or as uh, Tisagi Iron Priest Tanzania, and I'm not sure if that's supposed to be Priest or if it's Priest misspelled. Like maybe it's uh, Tisagi uh, Iron Priest Tanzania. I don't know. I don't know which character this is. I don't know why they also have the last name Tanzania. It's a total mystery to me. It just adds to the allure of the film, though. Yeah. Uh, we have a, we have a, an actor by the name of Aki Along in this, who plays a Chinese businessman. He was born in 1934, Asian actor, born in Trinidad and Tobago. He has a bit, this is a bit part, it's not really much to, to but it's memorable, we'll get to it. Uh, but he has a, a number of parts in a lot of films over the years, he did some acting and directing. He was in two episodes of the original Outer Limits, he was on the As the World Turns, he was in V. Uh, General Hospital, Jake and the Fat Man, Babylon 5, and he was also in Dragon, the Bruce Lee story. Okay. We have a a character uh, actor show up as well, uh, and this is another one where I don't think he really does much in this film, but the actor Teddy Wilson. But he has some brief but memorable interactions because you can – he's one of these actors where – you know, Warhawk's great in this, but Warhawk doesn't have a lot of nuance to his performance. But Teddy Wilson, you can tell, like, this is a guy who, who gets some of the, uh, the intricacies of acting in ways that the martial artists maybe do not. It's always an interesting dynamic in martial arts films where the main cast is full of martial artists, people who you could say are martial artists first and actors second, and then they will often try to round it out just by filling in, like, great character actors to bring in that kind of... Uh, personality and texture that's not always there in people whose whose first thing is martial arts 
Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, Teddy, Teddy Wilson definitely stands out. Talented actor. He lived 1943 through 1991. Um, he played Sweet Daddy Williams on Good Times, and he did a lot of additional TV work popping up on big TV shows from that era, including but not limited to by any means uh, All in the Family, Sanford and Son, The Bionic Woman, The Jeffersons, the 1980s Twilight Zone series, L.A. Law, Alien Nation, Family Matters, and even Tales from the Crypt. He oh. was in the episode Fitting Punishment. I don't know if you remember this one, but this uh, this had a um, uh, it, it involved a, a black funeral home, and you had uh, the wonderful uh, actor Moses Gunn playing this tyrannical funeral director there, like being uh, being just like a just really hard on his nephew. No, I don't think I've seen it. Uh, it, it's, it's a good, it's not like top shelf, uh, uh-huh. tales from the crypt, but it's, it's pretty good. And Teddy Wilson shows up in it. Um, but yeah, T- Teddy Wilson was, a, he was in a bunch of stuff. He was in films by, uh, John Cassavetes, Blake Edwards, and he was in the 1980 Steve McQueen movie, The Hunter. Mm. All right. Uh, some other names of, of note and also names that are barely worth noting. There's a, an actor by the name of Stephen DeFazio who plays Sam, the lugheaded cop, um, a memorable character in the film, but this is his only film role. Um, but uh, yeah, he's he's pretty fun as a lugheaded conspiracy theory spreading a police officer. Wait, is he supposed to be a lughead? I get that he's like the butt of jokes, but I thought the whole point was that he's kind of like Harley Stone's new partner. He's like the he's I've got a criminology degree. He's you know <laughs> bringing this kind of like smooth academic sensibility that's actually stupid. Uh, I mean, maybe that's what they were going for. I got more lug-headed conspiracy theory spreader. Uh, uh, he, he is the guy who keeps saying that the murders caused by the demon in the subway tunnels are actually caused by mutant cats. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But, but he's funny. Clearly, the, the, they, they ended up like ending on a note from him uh, with mm-hmm. the film. So they, they clearly liked the character once they got it on the screen. Yeah. All right, uh, uncredited, but Ron Bex is in this as a martial arts student. Uh, uncredited in this picture, but he went on to direct, produce, and star in several low-budget movies. I think he's still making low-budget movies. Um, starring in pictures that he directed, uh, opposite such names as uh, one-time Bond, George Lazenby, and even Eric Roberts. And you know Eric Roberts won't just appear in anything. <laughs> Um, here's another one of note. Uh, Paul uh, Glickmana was the director of photography on this. Uh, he was also cinematographer on some other famous 70s genre films, including The Stuff and God Told Me To. Now, as far as music goes on this film, I don't think it really has a score per se, but they, they do feature a number of different uh, musical bits, and it fe- features several tracks from a music group called Rising Sun. Like uh, like son and daughter, rising sun, mm-hmm. uh, which which didn't mean anything to me until I started looking into it a little bit. And these songs were written by Harlem disco legend Patrick Adams. Uh, now, if you haven't heard of Patrick Adams, uh, you you can be forgiven for that. Apparently, he's uh, he's often um, forgotten or not recognized outside of the genre, but is 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 very well respected within the disco genre and in DJ circles. Uh, there was a, a 2017 Guardian profile about him that described him as, quote, the underground disco super producer whom DJs still adore. Oh, okay. So even if you don't know the name Patrick Adams off the top of your, your head, you've, you've probably heard some of the songs that he worked on. Uh, some, some of these songs were prominently featured in other movies, including uh, Touch Me All Night Long, performed by Fonda Ray and the band Wish from 1984, which was a minor hit on its own, but then it went on to be featured in A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. Ah, I know that movie well. <laughs> uh, other tracks that he had a hand in include Dance, Dance, Dance by Martin Acuna, In the Bush by Musique, uh, Keep on Jumpin' by Musique. Um, that's also the name of the 78, uh, 1978 album. And you can look that up on Spotify. It's, it's great stuff. Just wonderful 70s disco vibe. Uh, also, Till You Surrender by Rainbow Brown and many others. So uh, it, this ended up, uh, I, at first I thought there wasn't going to be anything special with the music on this picture, but it turns out it was very special. So if, you, if you're if you not familiar with the work of Patrick Adams, look it up. Uh, you've heard it before. You just didn't realize you've heard it before. Uh, but yeah, he had his hand in so many great tracks, and I think he's still making music today. 
I also really enjoyed the soundtrack on this. And one of the things I uh, liked was the, the sudden transitions between like really great uh, pulsing uh, disco or, or, or funk music uh, immediately cutting to like throbbing deep sea sound effects when it was trying to get <laughs> the demon in your mind. Yeah. All right, well, let's get the demon in mind on this episode. Let's jump into the plot of Devil's Express. All righty. Well, the very first thing we see, uh, we get a little title. It says, China, 200 BC. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Where in China? (laughs) Just somewhere in China, though Uh it quickly becomes apparent that (laughs) any scene in this film that's supposed to take place in China is clearly still New York. Uh, Specifically, I think they shot this at uh, Harriman State Park, uh, Bear Mountain. Uh, So, yeah, it's, it's very obviously not china uh but it's supposed to be and, what do you and, think about the scene of the plane landing in hong kong you think that was real stock footage i think it was real stock footage <laughs> all the way <laughs> now here at uh Harriman state park in in china uh we have some monks who are disposing of some kind of fearful artifact that's the first thing you see them in a train sort of uh not a train like a locomotive uh they are walking in a row carrying this big box like a sarcophagus Mm -hmm. almost or like they're carrying the ark of the covenant right and uh they are also they're they're being watched over by this kind of head priest guy and they have in their possession a mirrored amulet and they take this big box and the mirrored amulet deep into a cave in the forest and they deposit the amulet in the box in the cave and then I guess it's quitting time. And once it's quitting time, they are all beheaded. I think it, this is presumably so they take the secret of the amulet to the grave with them. Yeah. Uh, so their their leader, after beheading each of them in a row, he cuts his own throat. And so one would assume that the secret evil of whatever is in that box is is now safe forever. Or is it? Well, yeah, they they don't count on meddling martial artists from the United States coming to, to China in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. One thing I like in this movie is that, at least in this opening scene, I think this was actually less true in some of the later scenes, but in this opening, it has some really way over-the-line sound effects. It's one of those things where somebody swings a sword and hits nothing, just swings it <laughs> in the air, but it produces this extremely loud steel cable kind of sound. Yes, And then after that, we get to one of these great editing montages I was talking about earlier, which is really funny because it's cutting during the opening credits. It's cutting between a subway tunnel with these spooky, deep chirping sounds and no music. And then immediately back to crowded streets in New York City with feel good music at full volume. Mm -hmm. And then we meet our hero. We meet Warhawk Tanzania playing this guy named Luke Curtis. And Luke is teaching martial arts in his studio. He's sparring with this Christian slatery kind of guy who is uh, weird to find out is the police detective. And apparently there's a relationship where this guy is Luke's student and he keeps trying to recruit Luke to become a cop. I think <laughs> is that how you understood yep. it? Yeah. Yep. Uh, by the way, some of the synopses you will find of this movie online say that Luke is a cop and that is absolutely not correct. Luke is not a cop. He does not appreciate uh, uh, this guy's attempts to recruit him to be a cop. And he says, some, he says, uh, next time you try to recruit me to that pig pen of yours, I stop pulling my punches and ice you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, not definitely not a cop. Um, but, but that doesn't mean he can't train with a cop. I think what, one of the, the key messages of this film is that martial arts is a, a unifier and it can yes. unify, uh, you know, different gangs, uh, different uh, races, different cultures, and uh, and also it can it can unify. Uh, you know, you can even throw the police in there, and everybody could get along if they are practicing martial arts and sweating profusely. If they're practicing martial arts with the right state of mind, that yes. seems to be Luke's ethos. That uh, martial arts is not just about fighting; it also in, involves some kind of higher wisdom and and uh, and an orientation toward peace yes now luke's student rodan comes in and again this is the guy played by uh, wilfredo roldan and uh they they start talking with the the cop student here and we find out that luke and rodan are about to travel to what luke says is fabulous downtown hong kong 
And then they're going to go for a week of self-improvement, which we find out later they're going to like a monastery of some kind to, uh, to, to train to the level of perfection. Yeah, like they've, they've clearly, the, both Luke and Rodan are performing at such a high level. The only way they can improve is to is to go on journeys like this. So after the student leaves, we we sort of get a picture that Luke and Rodan are. What would you? I, I would say that it seems like they are adjacent to the criminal underworld, but Luke at the same time is a sort of do-gooder who fights for justice. Rodan, meanwhile, not so much. He comes yeah. off as mean, coarse, selfish, and sh- short-sighted. Yeah. And uh, so, so if Luke is somewhere in the lawful good zone, or at least neutral good, he's kind of a knight of the fist. Rodan is somewhere more like chaotic neutral. He he will get into trouble. Yeah, he's uh, a rogue. Yes, and we also learn from this interaction that uh, let's see, we learn that there are gangs, and they talk about the gangs, and we learn that they have disdain for cops and for the man. Mm-hmm. Now they immediately go to Hong Kong, uh, and in the Hong Kong segments, I wondered if in the version of the movie you watched, was there some dialogue audio that was missing here? Like there are parts where they arrive, and the master of this place speaks to them, speaks to our heroes, but he's got his back turned and I heard nothing. Yeah, there there were a couple of scenes in this where it made it made me wonder if they didn't get the sound quality they wanted or they or if they later decided that the actual dialogue was unnecessary or perhaps dumb. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a later scene that I particularly remember where characters are having a prolonged conversation and there's nothing really visually interesting going on. But we have music playing over it. So it really felt like, well, I, maybe they didn't get the sound they needed on this particular scene. So they're just going to roll some uh, some fabulous disco music on top of it. Yeah. No complaints. But Luke has complaints. Luke has complaints about Rodan's attitude because at mm-hmm. this monastery, uh, it's clear that Luke is fully committed to attaining the highest level of martial arts mastery. He's He's on the ball. But Rodan, he is distracted. He, his head is elsewhere. His head is all clogged up with the lingering frustrations of New York and, uh, and sort of stresses and maybe desires for vengeance. And so after he reaches the highest level of physical prowess, Luke has to bring his mind to the same level of transcendence, which they say is achieved by sending him off to meditate in a special place in the wilderness while his specially chosen favorite keeps guard over him. And he chooses Rodan, and that does not seem like a good choice. (laughs) So while Luke is in a trance, achieving higher levels of spirituality, Rodan, being Rodan, wanders off and gets into trouble instead. And so what he does is he wanders into a cave, and oh no, it's a cave of forgotten demons. It's the cave from the beginning of the movie. And he finds a secret amulet, snatches it, runs off. And then it's pretty much back to New York. Yeah, yeah, right back into it. They fly back, and they've they've got they've got business to take care of, and uh, they're out to do it. Uh, but we we immediately see the evil that seeps from this uh, ancient sarcophagus in the cave now that it's not being contained by the power of the amulet, because the removal of the amulet has, of course, released the monster from the cage. Mm-hmm. And we uh, we get a montage where the demon now travels to New York. I was wondering at first, like, wait, why does the demon travel to New York? But maybe he's he's after the amulet. Is that how you understood it? I guess it? so. He, uh, he, wa- he must want the amulet. Like, maybe he thinks he can destroy the amulet. Uh, yeah. the, the film doesn't quite explain it, but it's it's what's happening. But the demon travels by – so first he's got – he does appear to have like a bodily form. He's not just like a ghost because you see he's got these hands with claws as he's crawling mm-hmm. up out of the water. But then he possesses somebody and doesn't have a body anymore. He just possesses a, a guy's body and it's yeah. this boat passenger. Yeah, just a Chinese businessman who seems to be out doing his own thing. And now the demon is inside him, and now it is time for the demon to take this fleshly vessel, get on another vessel, and travel to New York as well. Right. So maybe he picked this guy because this guy had a ticket to travel to New York by boat. Yeah. Which is, if you're traveling to New York by boat, that's a long trip. Yeah. Oh, but also when the man becomes possessed by the demon, the way they signal that is it gives him these huge wild white eyes with tiny pupils. It looks kind of to me like they cut out wedges of ping pong balls and, and taped them over the actor's eyes. Do you think that's what they're doing here? It's either that or they had him keep his eyes closed and they painted his lids white and put the black pupils on them. Um, 
both of these are ridiculous directions to go in, and it looks somewhat goofy, but also, I don't know, somewhat effective within the context of this particular film. Yes. And so when they get to, when the demon gets to New York, the guy immediately scrambles down into the subway tunnels. This is where his home is now. Mm -hmm. And it's where he will remain for the rest of the film. Uh, now back with our characters like Luke and Rodan, we see we see Rodan getting into more and more trouble. He's getting mixed up with double dealings, with drugs, with money and gangs. And Rodan ends up with a thirst for vengeance after he is robbed by one of the Chinese gangs. Uh, meanwhile, uh, they ha they talk about it, and Luke chides him for basically for messing around with this low life stuff. He's very clear. Luke is like, this is not what martial arts is about. Yeah. And so the movie is projecting this sort of Jedi Sith vision of martial arts. You can be like a, a, a you can be a good martial artist or you can be a bad martial artist. And if you're bad, that's not real martial arts. It's a, no true Scotsman about martial arts. Yeah, it, uh, Luke is is practicing martial arts almost um, f just for itself. You know, yeah. uh, he's he's practicing it because martial arts is is like the path to enlightenment. Whereas Rodan. He sees it as the as a means of of kicking butt and advancing in whatever criminal pursuit he's uh, he's wandering into petty vengeance, etc. Right now, in the meantime, we get a demon transformation scene that uh, I, I had high hopes for. This it it was okay. It wasn't it wasn't crazy good. I thought it exceeded expectations. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Uh, I mean, uh, it would work for me. I mean, it's poorly lit. It's in the subway, and his body just goes super gross and uh -huh. starts sort of crumbling and rotting, and he becomes this this uh, rotten, gooey skeleton man in the subways. Mm. Yeah, so he bleeds. He First he bleeds red blood, then he bleeds green blood, then he tears holes in his own torso, and then the transformation takes. I wonder if the demon had higher hopes for, for New York City, you know? Oh, like, he, he moved he to New York in the form of a businessman. He thought he was going to ascend in the world. He was going to rise up. He was going to be living in one of those skyscrapers, making big deals. Right. Uh, but it just didn't work out that way. And instead, here he right. is, rotting in the subway. That's He goes down into the tunnels. He's like, all right, ready for deals. And then he's looking around. He's like, where are the deals? He's trying to make deals with rats. He's trying to make deals with discarded, uh, you know, uh, coffee cups. And it's not working out. So he's like, oh, to hell with this and just transforms. Yeah. He's like, I guess I'll just do more killings. Now, here we get into a part of the movie where there are some street fight scenes where Rodan and his friends confront a rival gang in an alley. And uh, the, this New York City street fight does involve swords, which is yes, good choice. Yeah, I mean, the swords, but also also some just really impressive uh, kicks. Like, I, I don't know that I would really hold this up as a, an example of great martial arts choreography, but mm. it, it looks pretty good. There's some really high kicks. I mean, Roldan and, uh, and Warhawk Tanzania, they can, they can really do it. Yeah. Now, at some point in the middle of the fight, the rival gang, they see that Rodan has this amulet. He's hanging on a necklace around his neck. And one of the guys sees that, and then they're just like, oh, no, and they bolt. And I guess this suggests they are aware of its association with the indescribable evil that will turn your blood green. Yeah, it, it seems to be the case. Uh, I also wonder if, if the demon's arrival in New York, if it has somehow had this effect on the, the surface uh, world here. Like, there's more conflict because the demon is present, you know? Oh, yeah. We're getting into a Vigo the Carpathian situation again. Yeah, maybe it's kind of a Ghostbusters thing going on. Yeah. It's making everybody mean. Yeah. Uh, but here we reach the part of the movie where it's cop time. So remember the mm -hmm. cop who was training with Luke earlier? Well, it seems like he is a he is a grimy chain smoking detective. I think his first lines or some one of the first things he says when we meet him again later in the movie is something about how he's like drowning in alimony payments. Mm -hmm. And and what do you know? He's got a new partner. Uh, he has a new partner who the guy you called a lughead, but I, I I could be wrong, but I think the way you're supposed to read him is he is a nerdy sort of by the book academic criminology type who doesn't know anything about the real world. Yeah. Okay. It could. It could. Could be the case. Okay. But I gotta say, uh, uh, Officer Christopher is no Harley Stone. No. Uh, and but he does end up taking it too personal, though. I guess not as personal as as the ultimate hero of the film. 
right. uh, who of course is Luke. But uh, they, so they're called in to solve a murder. There has been a gruesome killing in the subway tunnels. They say, oh, it looks like he got caught in a meat grinder. And there's immediately a reporter on the case trying to pry details out of uh, Christopher Christopher. And Christopher insists that he has a theory about who the killer is, which is not true at all. And he admits to his partner when the reporter leaves. Uh, but after this, we get a, a sense of the demon's M.O. because we watch him kill a guy. So there is a guy who wanders down into the subway tunnels wearing a plaid blazer. And then the demon in a monotone voice says, help me. It's dark in here. I'm stuck. And the, the guy in the plaid blazer is like, oh, someone needs help. And he wanders off into the tunnel to help them and then munch. Yeah. So we were learning that our demon here isn't just a a, a monster that grabs people or a monster that possesses people. He's, he's also a, a master of illusion, perhaps. Uh, he's yeah. a deceiver. Though his his illusions at the climax of the film are much better than the illusion here. This is just a monotone voice saying things in a way that sounds totally implausible, saying, help me, I am trapped. Mm. Later in the movie, he can fully transform into other people. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe he's still growing in power at this point. You know, he's still absorbing the, the, the energy of New York City and transforming it into his own evil. Right. So immediately there is a second subway victim. The detectives are back on the case. The, the new partner is uh, is vomiting at the sight of the <laughs> carnage on the tracks. Uh, but I, this was the part we were talking about with the conspiracy theories. The new partner, he's got, a, he's got something to share with the reporter. And it's this. Basically, all the animals that live in the sewers, including cats, rats, dogs, maybe alligators, have mutated and come up into the subway tunnels to attack and eat people. <laughs> and this seems to be an obsession of this character's of, of Dr. Criminology here, because in multiple later scenes in the movie, he's explaining about how the sewers have alligators that are twice the size of normal alligators with fangs that'll chop a man's leg right <laughs> off. And there are, there are cats and dogs and rats that survive by cannibalism down there. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, festered into this uh, unnatural uh, subworld environment. And that's what's eating people. He's like regaling the all the people hanging out at the bar where, where Luke and Rodan hang out uh, with, <laughs> with these theories later in the movie. And they seem quite entertained. You know, I will say the middle third of the movie does not have enough Warhawk Tanzania in it. It's all... It's mostly Rodan doing his gang fights and then the cops investigating murders. Now, did we mention the long scene that just shows like a day in the life and love of Warhawk Tanzania's character, Luke? Oh, we didn't, but it's very sweet. It's got a good soundtrack and it's just showing him, I guess, with his his wife or uh, I'm not quite sure who she was, his wife or his girlfriend. Um, mm -hmm. And it just shows them like eating together and hanging out. And it, it seems great. There's one yeah. scene where I think they're eating scrambled eggs with chopsticks. Yes, they are. Yeah, that's yeah. great. So you can reflect on this sequence when you're stuck in the part of the movie where there's little to no Warhawk Tanzania. Right, that's true. Uh, but eventually we get back on track when Detective Christopher Christopher concludes that the murders may have something to do with Luke's school. Uh, and when he approaches them, him about the idea uh, and about working together, Luke does not want anything to do with it. Again, uh, reestablishing this theme, this dynamic that Luke – from the movie's point of view, Luke is clearly lawful good, but he also wants nothing to do with the police. They're, you know, right. they're, they're portrayed as a, a dirty, corrupt organization. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's at least one line there where they're, the characters are concerned that the, uh, the heat's going to come down and that the police are just going to come in indiscriminately with shotguns, you know? Right, yeah. So I think Luke has legitimate concerns here. He doesn't want any part of that world. Right. So meanwhile, the subway monster maulings and the Rodan gang fights continue. Uh, these two plot lines converge when Rodan becomes outnumbered in a gang fight, runs down a subway tunnel to escape, and there the demon kills him by shoving his face into some kind of electrical panel, which fries him. Yeah, I mean, Rodan's been really throwing down with some amazing kicks, uh, you know, taking on multiple guys at once. But mm -hmm. the monster just gets the drop on him and just fries his face. But it's a great sequence, though, because you see him like grab his throat. You see his face twist into this this strange uh, uh, expression. And then later, when we see his corpse, we we see like a like fried Rodin, like they did uh, some sort of a uh, crude but effective makeup job. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They they really do show him cooked. Mm -hmm. 
So when Luke sees this, he is enraged and he thinks it was the work of the Red Dragon Gang. And he goes on a martial arts rampage to meet their leader and find out what happened. So there's another street fight scene, uh, the, the, this fight scene where he goes and he fights some of the members of the gang. Uh, the opponents are mostly wearing jeans and T-shirts. But I got to point out in this scene, Warhawk Tanzania is dressed awesomely. He's wearing these <laughs> amazing like shiny gold pants with flared legs. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, is this the costume that he also wears into the final fight? Well, this so a different one? I was actually wondering about that. In the final fight, when he goes to confront the demon, he's not wearing a shirt. He's just wearing gold suspenders. Yeah. And they might, they're the same kind of color as the ones in the scene, but they might be different. I'm not sure. At any rate, he's he's always dressed fabulously. Uh-huh. Uh, like he, he goes into a fight knowing that he needs to, you know, he, he needs to hit hard. Physically, but also from a fashion standpoint. So after he goes to fight the Red Dragons, they explain to him that they did not, in fact, kill Rodan. And they take Luke to a wise old man who will explain to the, to him the truth about the amulet and the demon. And uh, I don't know. It was hard to tell, but this wise old man either has some major makeup on his face or it's a person in a mask. Yeah, and I was left wondering if this was, in fact, the mysterious Iron Priest Tanzania that huh. we encounter. I, I'm not sure. Uh, but at any rate, yeah, this is the scene where the wise old man explains what's happening to our, our heroes and sets them on the course uh, towards the, the defeat of evil. So it goes like this. The old man says, 2,000 years ago, the sorcerer master Long Tan would allow some men to be possessed by demons— and these he would use to terrorize villages and cities. Master Chiang Dao produced the amulet in which he trapped the spirit of the demon, and this is the amulet your friend took. This monster is released into the world. As long as the amulet exists, the demon is deprived of most of his power. Even though he is still strong, he is unable to tolerate... And I think what he says here is light, but for the longest time I thought he said flight, and I was... I was just baffled trying oh, to understand this. That's why I took the boat. Yeah, but I mean, it made sense because he took the boat. I was, he's unable to tolerate flight. And then he goes on to say, that is why your subways are a perfect place for him to hide. But it, he's got to mean light, right? I think yeah. that is what he says. Yeah, yeah can't tolerate the, tolerate the light. That's why he's in the subways. But all this with the amulet makes sense now. He followed the amulet to the United States because he, he wants to destroy the amulet. It's the only way that he can uh, achieve his maximum power. Uh huh. And when he finishes the explanation, uh, Luke reacts. He says, "In my head, your story is fantastic, but in my heart, I know you're speaking the truth." Yeah. So I think we're also to understand that Luke has Luke has powerful intuitions, right? He does. He, His yeah. he, he did an intuition check on on that story, and yeah, uh, yeah he nailed it. Natural what kind 20. of check is that? Is that insight? You roll insight, for wisdom, yeah. wisdom modifier. Yeah, yeah. That would be that would be insight. So we learn from the old man that the demon will stop at nothing to regain this amulet. By destroying it, he will be free forever, immortal and indestructible. Whoa. Uh, so uh, Luke Luke immediately admits that he feels personally responsible for unleashing the demon on the world because he took Rodan with him on the trip. And Rodan was the one who stole the amulet. And so there's only one way to fix it. It's got to be a one-on-one showdown. Luke must defeat the demon in single combat. And if he loses, the demon will eat his soul. Do you think the demon ate the souls of the other people or just killed them? It's a good question. Uh, Unless he's a a fast eater, I I think maybe he skipped on eating some of the souls. I don't Uh know. But I'm not sure exactly how this demon consumes the souls. Maybe it's just an automatic effect that takes place whenever he uh, murders somebody. So Luke is warned that the demon is going to try to attack his mind, assuming the forms of those he loves most and those he fears most. He will use every trick in the book, the old man says. And he says that while Luke is fighting, he will uh, uh, th- he will help Luke by – he says, I will place my mind with yours. Perhaps together we will be stronger than one. Yeah, so uh, this is so we're setting up the ultimate battle here. Yeah. Good versus evil. Warhawk Tanzania against an ancient demon in New York City subway tunnels. Um it's this is what we've been working for. This is what the trailer promised us. 
Right. And so the next scene is very funny. This is one we alluded to earlier. Mm-hmm. It's it on one hand you've got the foreground action which is Luke is arguing with Officer Christopher that he has to go down into the subway and fight the demon and uh and Christopher disagrees. Meanwhile, right next to them, I think this is Theodore Gottlieb, right? Yeah, yeah. He, so he's out preaching a street sermon about how all your gods are dead and the rats are shrieking. Yeah, it's pretty great because I think he's saying something like, like, Jesus Christ is dead. Buddha is dead. <laughs> and then he ends with something, I think he says, and I'm not feeling so great myself. <laughs> <laughs> How did that connect to the thing about the rats shrieking? I'm not I sure. don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's, so. it's, his presence in this film is so weird because... Um, it, it makes you wonder how it came together, how they how they they got him for this, what they they told him to do. Like it uh, totally works. Um, seems improved, yeah. It does seem improved, and it's it adds to just the overall weird. It seems right that there should be somebody in the film uh, like ranting about what's going on below. Like it seems it feels appropriately New York, you know. Like this is this is some some well injected New York weirdness into this motion picture. That would be a good bumper sticker, though. All your gods are dead and the rats are shrieking. (laughs) The poetry of this movie. Yeah. So I think while uh, Christopher is distracted, Luke defies the police order, goes on down anyway because, you know, he he doesn't obey man's law. And uh, he goes on down carrying the amulet. And the confrontation of the demon happens. And it's kind of like at the end of the, the first Mortal Kombat game, you know, where the, the, the boss is transforming into all the other fighters you fought along the way. Mm-hmm. So the demon takes the, but also the demon takes the form of people he loves. So the demon appears in the form of his wife, in the form of the police, in the form of Rodan, and in the form of a train. Oh, yeah. It is, it is kind of like the, yeah, the battle with Shang Tsung at the end of the first Mortal Kombat. Creatures taking on all these forms, and and I, depending on the the shot, looks pretty good. I think in some of these these scenes, like the oh, monster yeah. costume. Clearly, this uh, was not a you know, it's not a Tom, Tom Savini joint here or anything. But you get it into an actual New York City subway tunnel, and I feel like your lighting limitations probably do some of the work for you. Yeah, when we see him in full form, the demon is a kind of skull beast from the Black Lagoon. He he has. Uh, Sort of a skull outside of his skull, would you say? Yeah, he's kind of like, imagine a, a skeleton made entirely of cartilage that, that then was, is swollen with uh, corruption and evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this very um, you know, nurglesome kind of body to him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, we'll leave it up to you to guess whether Warhawk Tanzania is, is victorious <laughs> in defeating the demon or not. Uh, but w- one thing that happens after this is we, uh, after the final fight, we, I think, go to the hospital. And mm-hmm. there in the hospital, there's a scene that I think is meant to convey a sort of like harmony has been achieved between yes. the, or the factions and gangs that had been angry at each other earlier. It is such a sweet, dumb ending because, yeah, yeah. you have you have the, the police hanging out. You have Warhawk Tanzania. You got members of both gangs. Everybody has come together. The supernatural evil has been defeated and, and everyone has been able to unify. Martial arts has brought people together and it's going to be a new dawn in New York City. I like it. And then over the end credits, you see the old man from earlier taking the amulet out to sea. He goes on a boat. I'm not sure what he's going to do with it. Is the implication that he'll, he'll like throw it in the ocean or something? I thought maybe he was taking it back to China. Oh, that would make sense to put it back in the cave where it came from. I guess. Uh, hopefully, but ah. we hopefully hide it somewhere better. Otherwise, another Rod- Rodan's going to show up and just wander into the cave and make off with it. That cave was way too close to the monastery. Yeah. <laughs> and sadly, we're not. I was hoping they would tell us at the end. Warhawk Tanzania will return in Warhawk Tanzania. You know, like like I, I wanted more the promise of more Warhawk Tanzania at the end, or that you know at least that Luke would be back. Uh, but uh, sadly, it did not come to pass. Don't be sad that it's over. Be glad that it happened. Yeah, yeah. In a way, like the stars aligned perfectly on this. Um, uh, the, the the interview that I read with Wilfredo, one of the things that he pointed out is that he was in some of these films, and then he realized that it was just going to be a real struggle to make any money to make a living doing mm-hmm. this. And that's why he got, he became a teacher, uh, you know, both in the uh, New York school system, but then also as a, as a martial arts instructor. And so, you know, one imagines that, that that's probably something like that happened with uh, Warhawk Tanzania as well. Uh, the man behind the myth, uh, you know, moved on to something more mundane and maybe something more satisfying. Um, 
Or again, Warhawk Tanzania continued the battle and is still battling today, fighting all the various demons in the world and their various subworld layers and, uh, and, and protecting the surface world from absolute chaos. Well, wherever he is, I hope he's doing great. Uh, if, if you're listening, email us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, you know, no joking. This, he was, he's terrific in this. I, lo- I love Warhawk Tanzania. Uh, it really delivers in this film. All right. So you're probably wondering, well, where can I get some Warhawk Tanzania? Where can I watch Devil's Express? Well, uh, I think the first place I saw this film, uh, like where it first caught my attention is that I, I saw it on Amazon Prime. Uh, I think it's still on Prime. You might have to like rent it through Prime, but the full film is also widely available on YouTube. You can find it on Tubi uh, as well. And then also we mentioned the Blu-ray from Code Red. Uh, there's a Blu-ray of the film that's a, that's available. It's that it uses a 2016 2K scan of the original negative. So that's pretty cool. Viewer discretion is advised. Yes, definitely, definitely. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and uh, close uh, close the, the the book on this one. We're going to go ahead and and uh, restore the amulet to its uh, subterranean crypt. But if you would like to listen to other episodes of Weird House Cinema, you will find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Uh, we have Weird House Cinema on Fridays, but uh, our normal science episodes, our core episodes are on Tuesdays and Thursdays, Lister Mail on Mondays, and an episode of The Artifact on Wednesdays. Uh, you can find the podcast feed wherever you get your podcast, but you can also go to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Dot com That will shoot you over to the iHeart listing for this page. And if you look around on that page, there's also a store button. Uh, and indeed, if you go to the store now, uh, as of this recording, you can get a sticker or a magnet with the Weird House Cinema logo on it. And I, I hope very soon that there will be a T-shirt available as well. They're having to do something else with the logo file to make it work. But by the time this episode airs, maybe, maybe there'll be a shirt, but there at least will be a sticker uh, or a magnet that you can get. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audience producer Seth Nicholas Johnson if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio for more podcasts from iHeartRadio visit the iHeartRadio app Apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows 